Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Contreras Show for Thursday, October 22nd. Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin, pleaded guilty to federal criminal charges yesterday. They'll pay $8 billion U.S. and will close the company. An authority on the subject of pharmaceutical policy tells us why this isn't even close to justice being done. And your car insurance rates are going up despite the fact that you've got fewer accidents on the books and your car is parked more often. What's up with that? We'll talk with Nanish Kotak. But first... People need help right now. They need confidence in the future, they're not looking for an election. So new Democrats will not give Prime Minister Trudeau the election he's looking for. How would an election in the second wave of a pandemic improve our response? How would that help the well-being of Canadians? Mr. Trudeau is willing to put his own political fortunes, a continued cover-up ahead of the health of Canadians. Jagmeet Singh from the NDP and Aaron O'Toole from the Conservatives yesterday with their two cents on what was going on in Parliament Hill. That non-confidence vote ended up not calling a snap election. Mike Lucatur joins the show. He covers federal politics from Parliament Hill for Global National. Mike, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show to get your perspective. Correct me if I'm wrong. Jagmeet Singh uh, said, foot's coming down, uh, but never put his foot on the ground yesterday. Yeah, it was one of those things where he said, I'm standing up for Canadians and I'm standing up for all the help that needs to continue to go out the door, um, but not really sort of wagging his finger at the government. Or maybe he did wag his finger at the government, but didn't really do much to uh, you know, sl- slap the hand of the government because essentially the government continues on. Uh, but there was no other choice for the NDP when you consider it. Um, their poll numbers are not fantastic. Their uh, financials are not fantastic. Uh, some say that a virtual campaign, um, you know, rather than renting planes and, and buses and going around, would actually be cheaper for the NDP and better. Uh, but they didn't really have much of a choice. So they chose what they say is the moral high ground um, and deciding we're going to continue working with this parliament to make sure um, that they actually get some work done. Consider this for a second, though, and this maybe is an option out there, but this is a possibility. If the NDP looks at the tea leaves and sees that in other provinces, such as New Brunswick, where Blaine Higgs decided to call an election in the middle of a pandemic and went from a minority parliament to a majority parliament, uh, parliament, what would that do to the power structure on the federal scene? Look at it this way. Right now, the NDP can cozy up to the federal liberals and help get things done and say, look, we will give you our support, but only if you do this. And they can be seen as being a power broker or a party that is actually making things work. If they go into an election campaign and for some reason the liberals, it's in the realm of possibilities, have a majority government, then Jagmeet Singh no longer has a hand on the wheel and has no possibility of forming uh, any kind of policy or legislation. So maybe this was a smart move on the part of the NDP because this way they're still a player in the game. Right. And if they would have recused themselves from the vote, they would have left it up to uh, possibly the Greens or some independents to decide on the fate of, you know, whether we're going back to the polls. Let's talk about the I think I might as well talk about the conservatives for a second here. Their motion seeking to create a special committee, the uh, anti-corruption committee, which the liberals had a real problem with the name of. Um, was defeated yesterday. Uh, did They didn't want an election either. 
for the various reasons that you just mentioned. But uh, with it being defeated, is that the end of their fight? What do you think this means for the conservatives? No, I mean, there are still other processes, even within the Ethics Committee. Uh, and even Charlie Angus from the NDP noted that that's why the NDP was going to vote against the, the conservative motion, because there are other lever, levers they can still pull to continue to dig into the We Charity scandal. It doesn't have to be um, this special uh, committee as such. Um, but even today, there's another opposition uh, motion on the table by Michelle Rempel Gardner, the health critic from the Conservatives, to do a deep dive on all of the pandemic response uh, by this government. So things such as, uh, you know, the recommendation of travel restrictions and mask wearing. How did that happen? The Public Health Agency of Canada's communication strategy. Uh, also, the slow progress of deployment of rapid testing. Essentially, they want to go over the entire response of this government with a fine-tooth comb. Now, one Liberal MP has basically said that if we do this, you are asking all public health officials stop what they're doing right now, stop with the response, um, and sift through emails and documents instead. The one issue is that the NDP is actually on board with this. Um, and, you know, as we had heard, the Conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole, basically said, look, this isn't uh, a showdown for us. This is for us to look through what happened during the first wave so we can learn from it as we get through the second wave and the third. Politics is obviously behind this uh, because they continue to say that the government of Canada did not listen to science, did not follow all the public health advice within Canada, but was more leaning on what they were hearing from China and other places. So they really want to try and do this. The question is, is there wiggle room for this government to go, OK, this is your opposition um, motion. I hope you understand that if you know our contention that this will grind the pandemic response to a halt. So can we meet you in the middle here and actually go through this? Because the government has shown that they're open to going through the pandemic response and examining it, even examining all of their spending. They just don't want it to be as wide ranging um, as this, uh, as the conservative motion seems to insinuate. But at the same time, um, the, the conservatives don't want to be seen as limiting uh, their motion so that the liberals can only answer the questions that they want to answer. But in the minority government, they can call for a, uh, a, a non-confidence vote at any time, right? So they could, could they threaten that again, the liberals, or was that a one-off? Like, what is, what is the possibility of them uh, just yelling, okay, well, we're going to do it all over again? I mean, the reality is they can do this every single time. And then we can have what we had yesterday is this weird game of chicken and brinksmanship where, uh, you know, all the political journalists in Ottawa sit nervously with a bag packed in the office in case we have to jump on a bus. Um, but in reality, it's going to get pretty tiresome. Uh, from the electorate and from other opposition parties if the government thinks that they can continue on with this threat. In my opinion, it's a card that you cannot play that often, possibly just once, and this was it. And the calculation had to be made that it was going to be for an important reason. So, um, you know, the framing of this from the government's point of view could be, we'll do all of this, but when the response grinds to a halt and Canadians are upset about it, we're blaming you for this. And not us, because we didn't want, you know, this broad scope 
and all of the political uh, games that you're playing, as they would say. Uh, obviously, opposition MPs are looking at this more as, well, we've got to continue to do our job and hold you to account and, and question what you're doing. Just because it's a pandemic, we, you can't act like a majority government. So to answer your question, can they do it again? Yes. Will they do it again? I think they're going to take a more measured approach going forward and realizing that they can't continue to have this face-off on the floor of the House of Commons. Could this backfire on the prime minister? Because now the conservatives can keep pointing to a cover-up. Like Pierre Polyev was just uh, saying yesterday uh, that he's he thinks that maybe Justin Trudeau wakes up in cold sweats because he's hiding something big. You know, th- this does this whole election stunt look like more evidence that there was a cover-up? I mean, uh, certainly Pierre Polyev will paint it that way. He's very good at that. Uh, Pierre Polyev doing Pierre Polyev things, if I can put it that way because he's excellent at framing things in that way. But most certainly, the more a government runs away from something or refuses to answer a question, the more that opposition MPs and journalists will go, well, then why aren't you answering the question if it's so innocuous? Um, So certainly, if he continues to um, try and avoid certain subjects, uh, the prime minister I'm talking about here, then mm-hmm. certainly the Conservatives and opposition MPs will continue to go after it. Because at, don't forget, before prorogation, before this all went to committee, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says, yeah, I'll appear at committee on the We scandal. I've got nothing to hide. It's all out there. Everything is out there. Uh, we kind of saw that not everything was out there. And even they realized that not everything was out there. Uh, when you consider that, you know, Bill Morneau, the former finance minister didn't disclose $41,000 worth of expenses. Um, so it, it's one of those things that, um, that you know, as we continue to go on, I, I think you, you hit it there. If he continues to refuse to answer the questions, the questions will get even more intense. Mike Lutricatur, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. Yesterday, the U.S. Justice Department officials announced that Purdue Pharma the company that makes OxyContin and is largely responsible for the opioid epidemic in the States, will plead guilty to three federal criminal charges as part of a settlement of more than $8 billion U.S. Now, the company doesn't have $8 billion in cash, largely because the Sacklers sacked it away um, when they found out that they were going to be involved in a lawsuit. I think they took $10 billion and put it into a family trust. So they won't be able to pay all of the fines, but they will be dissolved as part of the settlement, at least Pardue Pharma will, And its uh, assets will be used to create a new public benefit company controlled by a trust or a similar entity designed for the benefit of the American public. And they will be making OxyContin. It's such a bizarre story. Joining us now on the show, Dr. Joel Lechin is an emergency doctor and professor at York University and expert in pharmaceutical policy. Uh, Doctor, what do you make of uh, this uh, settlement? Um, I'm not very impressed by it at all. I mean, first of all, it lets the Sackler family completely off the hook. Um, And I've read quite extensively on this issue. And from my reading, the Sackler family should be facing criminal charges. Um, The Sackler family is also going to be still one of the wealthiest families in the United States. Their estimated worth is $13 billion dollars. Um, and even if the full $8 billion um, was paid out, which, as you said in your introduction, it won't be, um, as of 
2016, so that's four years ago, the, uh, Purdue had made somewhere in the range of $31 billion, um, by selling OxyContin. So even $8 billion is only a quarter of their overall profits. You brought up that uh, neither the Sacklers nor any Purdue executives were criminally charged. Now, this agreement doesn't mean that they won't be charged in the future. Uh, they were known to uh, offer kickbacks, payments to doctors that prescribed OxyContin. Do you think that the it's, it's incredibly important to send a message to other food pharmaceutical companies by bringing the Sacklers to justice with criminal charges? I do. Um, you know, the, the um, knowledge of what the Sackler family did has, is well over a decade old. We go back to 2007 when there was a settlement with Purdue um, for $600 million. Um, and at that point, there was evidence of what the Sackler family was doing. Um, and if you let them off with civil penalties alone, and even that is not um, a sure thing, if you let them off with civil penalties alone, what you're, sending, what you're telling all the other drug companies is um, – don't worry about criminal charges. Don't worry about executives having to be in court and possibly going to jail because that's not going to happen. I mean, one of the reasons people think that the Sacklers and Purdue wanted to reach the agreement now is because they're getting a better deal under Trump than they would possibly would under if Biden's elected. Hmm. So it's all about timing at the end of the day. Um, I think that's part of it. Yes. Huh. I want to talk about this idea that they're going to have to set up a new company and this company will not only uh, produce drugs to deal with the opioid crisis, but it will also continue to produce OxyContin. Why would they keep making OxyContin and why would they allow the Purdue, the uh, Sackler family and whatever new entity that, that was uh, formerly Purdue create these painkillers? That's a very good question, to which I don't really have an answer. Um, you know, if, I think if you were talking to the justice officials, they would say they want to get money um, to the victims of, um, of the opioid epidemic um, and get money to help. By creating more victims? That <laughs> seems bizarre, doesn't it? And yeah. We've, yes. And in the emergency department, we certainly see the victims of um, of the opioid epidemic um, up here in Canada. We ha- the number of deaths is continues to rise in Canada. Um, right now, they are not from OxyContin, but OxyContin and other legal prescription opioids were gateway drugs to the epidemic. People got hooked on them, and then when they no longer became available, they switched to street drugs, which are laced with fentanyl, carfentanyl, and that's killing people now. I think we really need to uh, turn around our uh, impression and our opinions on who drug addicts are. Can you give us an idea of the people that are being affected by this opioid crisis in Canada, where they come from, who they are? The people who are affected can come from virtually anywhere. People get prescribed um, narcotics 
who are relatively are were being prescribed narcotics for relatively minor conditions. So you know, I had wrist surgery a few years ago. I got sixty um, Tylenol number threes um, for that, of which I used one. But that's an example of what prescribing practices used to be like. Um, so it could be your friend down the road who got injured her back by lifting something. It could be some kid who got um, who got a sports injury who got narcotics, and there are also um, people who um, who are have <clears throat> mental illness who used. Um, street drugs as a way of coping with their mental with their problems. So virtually anybody can be affected by um, narcotics, get addicted, um, and end up seeing me in the emergency department. Hopefully, still alive. Doctor Lechen, uh, at the end of the day, was justice done yesterday? I don't think so. I don't think it was done in the United States. And it certainly hasn't been done here in Canada. In fact, if you listen to the last statements from Purdue <clears throat> about the um, about how it marketed in Canada, it has has never admitted to any problems with the way that OxyContin was sold in Canada. Doctor, I want to thank you for your time. Have yourself a fantastic afternoon. Thanks very much, Kelly. Cheers. Dr. Joel Lechkin is a, an emergency room doctor, sees a lot of people suffering from the opioid crisis here in Canada. Also a professor at York University and expert in pharmaceutical policy. Like many people during this pandemic, I found myself working remotely and my commute time is seriously cut down. It's literally two seconds across the hall from one room to the next to get to the home studio as opposed to the two hour to and fro work on a daily basis, getting into the daily grind of getting on that 400 series highway, getting into Toronto and coming home on on a daily basis. So like many people, I've noticed my car has been sitting in the driveway. I've been saving a lot on gas. And I question, like a lot of people, why we're seeing a little bit of an increase when it comes to our car insurance uh, policies. Uh, policyholders have started to receive renewals that are marginally higher than last year. And when you take into consideration the fact that we're not driving as much or uh, insurance claims are well down because we're not having the same amount of accidents out on the roads that we see on a normal basis, you have to shake your head. We'd like to welcome onto the show Nanish Kotak, who's a lawyer and founder of Kotak Law. Welcome to the program, Nanish. It's always good to have you on. Likewise, it's great to be on. So I don't know about your insurance provider, but um, many people are saying that they're seeing their rates increasing now this year. Um, how are they justifying this? You're right. Absolutely, uh, Kelly. In fact, the rates are, are not just increasing marginally. Uh, many people are being asked to pay back a portion of any rebate that they got uh, together with uh, face an increase. Well, the reality is, and we look at the Fisher website, the Financial Services Regulatory Authority of Ontario, and they promote that insurance companies have given a billion dollars in rebate. But hidden in the fine print in their website is also that from December of 2019 until June of 2020, right through the pandemic, premiums across the province have gone up by $198 million. That's even with the alleged rebates. And if we look at the, the three years before that, so from really 2017 to the end of 2019, 
Ontario uh, drivers saw a 20% increase in their insurance uh, premiums. Um, in the approvals, if you go on the Fisher website, you'll see the approvals that will take place um, with the renewals this year going into early next year. Some of the companies are getting over 10% or 11% approvals for their increases. And this is despite uh, not just there's less cars on the road, but there are less accidents. You know, we got stats from the Ministry of Transportation that are showing, for example, in April of 2020, there were 4,812 claims. That is property damage, personal injury, or fatality. The same time last year, April 2019, there were 14,166. On the average, you're seeing a good 60 to 70% reduction in actual claims. But the flip side, we're seeing an increase in insurance premiums um, to, to historically high levels. And, you know, one, one could ask the question why, but there's really a lack of transparency in the way FISRA approves uh, auto rate increases um, and then goes ahead and sort of promotes this billion-dollar rebate um, rather than, um, you know, questioning why these rates are actually being requested when we know insurance profits in the auto sector are, in fact, going up. So is the Financial Services Regulatory Authority of Ontario, as you call them, FISRA, are they a government um, arm? Like, are they a government uh, group? Right. So they are to be arm's length from the government. They report to the Minister of Finance. They replace what was formerly known as FISCO. Uh, So it's relatively new that they've taken over this role. Um, But, you know, their mandate is, in fact, very, uh, very important. Their mandate is to promote good administration of insurance and pension plans and promote transparency and disclosure of information. I'm not sure if we're seeing that. Uh, you know, the proof really is in the pudding. Are we actually seeing the, the mandate being followed? Um, let's, let's look at this. You know, the reality is an insur- auto insurance policy is like a tax. We, in fact, have to have it. You know, we have to pay taxes. We have to have auto, in- auto insurance policies. So why is it this industry is, you know, they should make a profit. Every business should make a profit. But why is it this industry where we have to have their product repeatedly, repeatedly is, is being allowed to increase our premiums throughout Ontario and, and increase it, it, its profits. There was a study done by Dr. Fred Lazar um, of, the, uh, of York University Schulich School of Business. And he put out this study, in fact, in early 2020. I believe it came out in January. And he says Ontario residents have overpaid $5.6 billion in premium since 2011. And that insurance company profits have soared over 20% from 2017. He even goes further to say that the profits from Ontario in, uh, auto insurance um, premiums, in fact, help finance the, the entire casualty line for insurance companies throughout the country. And even the Insurance Bureau of Canada uh, acknowledges that per capita, our accident rate in Ontario is the lowest. Now, that's per capita. Sure, we have more people. But still, why are we paying the most premiums in, in the country and why are insurance companies allowed to do this? It's a real question. Lack of transparency. Yeah, you brought up the fact that this report came out in January, and I want to speak to the timing of uh, some of the uh, reimbursements we we received, uh, some discounts and and premium deferrals that we received in the springtime. Did that have anything to do with, you know, maybe the optics of, of the insurance company, maybe softening things to the people that are their clients? Well, there's, the optics looked bad at the beginning, and we saw the Minister of Finance, and we saw the Premier hoping and, and saying that they need to do their part. 
But let's look at this. I'll give you an example for myself. And I, and I know others are in the same situation. You're, we're told, okay, we will give you a rebate or reduction in your premium, a good reduction, if you park your car at home. Okay. So if I, don't, if I park my car at home and don't drive it, then I keep theft and, and fire on, on, on the policy. But I or anybody else could have done that anyway pre-pandemic. So what's so special about, about being told, well, park your car and we'll give you a discount? So that's what I have personally got offered. I know others who've been offered. Now, I know there are some who may have got a rebate, many people who didn't. But I also know of people who have been asked to pay part of the rebate back. Um, you know, later on in the year, oh, sorry, we gave you too much. This should not be allowed. I mean, at a certain point in time, you know, it, enough is enough, right? So, what, I mean, presumably there's a lot of insurers out there. Are, are we to shop around? Could that help? Uh, with you know, uh, giving sending a message to insurance providers, what what, yeah. what recourse do we have? Yeah, absolutely. I think shopping around is important uh, because there are a number of insurers. But just remember, when you shop around, doesn't you know the cheapest price might give you the cheapest um, policy too, the cheapest coverage. Coverage. Um, yeah. You know, we have to be very careful of what of what we pay for. I'll give you some examples. So, um, the. During the wind government, uh, I believe 2010 to 2017, we saw 17 separate cuts to the accident benefit regime. That is benefit, you know, money that gets paid out for your, to help you with therapy and attendant care. That was continually cut. You could buy optional benefits to increase that at a very, very cheap price. Um, they, they put in this deductible or increased the deductible to $40,000. That means if you get any money for pain and suffering, it gets reduced by $40,000 and a jury doesn't know. So you can buy some optional benefits to, to mitigate the unfortunate cuts that have happened over, over the years. And it doesn't cost a lot, of, a lot of money to do so. So my advice would be definitely compare prices, but also compare the product that you're buying and ask about some optional benefits that would help you. Certainly, if you do have a catastrophic injury or a quadriplegic, you know, maybe you need to, just in case, purchase a little bit of extra benefits for that, which don't cost a lot of money. But yeah, absolutely shop around, write to the Minister of Finance, write to FISA, write to the MPPs. The only way these issues get sort of dealt with um, uh, ultimately are when they become, in fact, election issues. And that's unfortunate. Yeah, well, the election's far away. So, I mean, we got to wait another two years at the very least for anything to happen. Um, can we expect that the uh, premier is going to push back when he finds out that insurance premiums are going up again? You know what? I uh, one thing about Premier Ford, he's he's pretty hands on, and and you know he puts himself out there as as answering personally calls and and being open to the public sentiment. So perhaps if anybody is going to do it, he will. But then again, you know we're dealing with a big insurance bureaucracy, a big lobby uh, that they have. Uh, so it, it, it may not happen. I, you know, I, I don't, really don't know. Nana, I want to thank you, you for your time today. Thanks for being so generous on the show. Uh, thank you for having me. Calvin and Lindsay, what have you uh, heard from your insurance provider? Well, Kelly, let me tell you this, and I hope everybody's listening, including these insurance companies. This is why it's happening. I investigate this insurance fraud. And what really bothers me about it is, yeah, I get a living from it, but they're punishing you and I for having a clean slate. My insurance went up 10%, just like that. So here's the deal. We all know who these people are frauding, but 
all they want to do, the insurance companies, is tick off the boxes so they've done their end and say, oh, we can't go after them, blah, blah, blah. The problem is, is let's just say intact is very aggressive and goes after people. Well, then you and I or anybody is going to say, ooh, I better not go with intact because they're really aggressive. And what if they make a mistake on me and I am legit? Then the onus is on me to prove it. So they'll go with somebody else. So it's all about business they're just as much of a scumbag as the claimer or the scammer is and i don't agree with you and i being punished for not for having a clean slate all right uh, you know i i actually do have a pretty clean slate i i have not uh looked to see how much my insurance is going up i'm gonna have to take a look into that uh but tyler and oshawa you are noticing uh, your insurance increasing, but it's not on auto. It's on business. We're hearing a lot about this. What, do you, what are you hearing? Yeah, so my family runs and operates a uh, banquet hall in North Oshawa. And last year, our uh, general liability insurance for the banquet hall was 2800 bucks. This yeah. year, it's 15000 oh. And the only thing I can think of, the only reason why it would explain that much of an increase is the pandemic, which makes absolutely no sense since we're not open. Wow. So they increased your insurance. You're not open. Uh, did they send you a reason why they're increasing the insurance? Like that's like 800% or something you said. Yeah. So our, our insurance broker, she contacted 21 different insurance companies. And of those 21 different insurance companies, 19 of them said they're just not insuring businesses and restaurants anymore. Wow. Which are some and of the we're... big ones, like some of the big insurance companies like State Farm and Intact and all them, they're just saying they're not doing it. Yeah. So what what's going to happen to you guys? I mean, I feel for for you. You know, your banquet halls shut down because of the pandemic. Are you going to survive this pandemic? That's a that's a good question. Uh, we have a secondary business on site. It's an aerial zipline park, and that's still open, so that's able to carry us a little bit through it. But if we're not able to open the banquet hall next year, then it's going to be pretty pretty hard to do it because we're not getting the break on our property taxes. We have to pay those. We have mortgage payments and all sorts of stuff that we still have to pay. So banquet hall, I don't know if it'll survive, but the the aerial park likely will. But I mean, we have two businesses and we don't want to see either of them fail. Is the rain coming down in the schwa right now? Because it sounds like uh, you've got some serious windshield wiper action going on there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's not super heavy, but it's uh, it's coming down a little bit. All right. Well, I thank you for the road report as well as your report on insurance. And I wish you the best of luck, Tyler. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks. You too. All right. Well, let's go to Troy and Muskoka. Troy, I'm going to give you the last word here. Uh, let's get back to auto insurance. You've noticed an increase in your auto insurance. It went up by how much? $1,000. And what it, did your, you know, Bruno had said that his uh, insurance provider didn't mention anything about why the insurance was Nothing. going up. It's just a 36% increase. Yeah, because I don't have any options because I do taxing. Like, I need that commercial insurance. Like, I'm, I'm hell over the barrel. Like, I have no claims, nothing for years, nothing. And, and they just raised it by $1,000. So I don't know. So when I heard the ministers and these guys saying that you're going to get a rebate and all that, I smiled because I, there's no rebate coming. There's no, you don't get a discount. And, and for two months, I had no business, like not one job that I get for two months. And I, I, my insurance is still up by 1000 bucks. So I don't know where they're living when they're still getting back money, but we are definitely not. 
Well, it, we'll have to wait and see if, and I, I thank you for your call, Troy. We'll have to wait and see what goes on with the premier because, you know, he usually is questioned on things like this. He's been pretty vocal about insurance providers in the past. Can he do anything? I'm not sure, but we'll follow the story for you. Hey, thanks for tuning into the podcast. Don't forget, we broadcast live for three hours, Monday through Friday, 9 to noon. If you can spare some time, we'd love to have you join us on 640 Toronto.